Si oto ofa, and welcome to the Tokyo Kamea podcast. This is your host, Richard. This is the fourth episode. Let's get on with the show. Hey, let's do a quick recap. In the last episode, we took a ride in the Wayback Machine to the time of Aho Eitu, the first Tuitonga, Tonga's first ruling dynasty. Mariner meets Finau Ulukalala II, one of the highest ranking chiefs in Tonga and the most powerful chief at the time. Mariner then describes several encounters that he had with the natives. Uh, that was kind of boring. I only mentioned a few of those, but、um, I was trying to really stay away from the narrative of like, hey, Mariner comes from a civilized part of the world, and here he is showing his fancy gadgets to、uh, these primitive natives in Tonga. And we've heard so many of those narratives before, and I didn't care to explore any more of it other than that watch that he had.、Uh, However, I think what's more interesting, Mariner is just,、uh, he is in awe at how Tongan men come together to dismantle the Port au Prince and manage to do this on task and without any complaints and without any noise. And so he is just totally in awe of what he just witnessed. But then the next thing he witnesses is、uh, horrific. And this is when a Tongan man climbed up one of the masts. And in the book, he's described as a lowly Tongan. Fina Ulkalala thought he was、uh, taking just a little bit too much of the iron, maybe a little greedy. And so he ordered one of the Hawaiians to take a musket and shoot him down. And that's exactly what happened. He shot him down. He fell all the way from the top of the ship and landed on the deck, and he was dead. Of course, Mariner is shocked and he asks Fina Ulkalala, How could you do that? And he's like, Ah! Whatever. Mariner and the 14 survivors complain of hunger to Ulukalala, which just really annoys and irks the hell out of him. So he asks Mariner about how does one get, go about getting food in his country? And so Mariner is explaining to him, yeah, we, we have these things called、uh, dinner and we invite people to come over to our homes. And Ulukalala just laughs at that idea and explains to him in Tonga. Meals are a communal experience, and so whenever anyone is cooking, all you have to do is just go over there and sit down and partake in the food and enjoy the company that you're with. And if you starve, it's your own damn fault. Mariner's books and all his writing materials are confiscated and they're burned because Tuitui told Ulkalala that these are instruments of witchcraft, and this was based on another experience of Europeans. And I talk about that in the last episode, and you can go back and listen to it, but I don't want to rehash it right now. However, we start to see this pattern of Tuitui just being hella shady, yeah? And that's not the only thing Tuitui does. He then advises Ulkalala to kill Mariner and the remaining survivors in case. Another European ship passes through Tonga and they might discover what happened to the Port au Prince and the captain and everyone that was killed and、uh, want to exact revenge. And so Ulkalala you know, listens to him and then he just laughs it off. He's like, nah, those Palangis, they're, they're way too nice. Mariner and then the remaining survivors ask for materials to build a ship that can take them to Australia. 
And surprisingly, Ulkalala agrees to it. But I think secretly he was like, they're not going to be able to. Anyway, so they build their ship and uh, one of the axes is broken. And so Ulukalala just immediately puts a halt to their plan because, you know, axes are very rare. The iron is rare and they don't know when the next ship is going to come. So their hopes of leaving Tonga is uh, gone just like that. And Mariner is finally resigned to living perhaps the rest of his life in Tonga. Welcome to episode four. This is entitled Finau's War. And if you are following along in the book, uh, that's also the title of chapter four. When Mariner arrived in Tonga, it was in the midst of a bubbling civil war. And Finau Ulukalala II was, uh, although a very powerful chief in Tonga, he did not have control of Tonga Tapu. And so his base was in Haapai and his allies were in uh, Vava'u to the north and then also in Hapai. What's interesting is that uh, Mariner makes note uh, that when Captain Cook was in Tonga, specifically in Hapai in 1777, um, it was a very peaceful time. There was no war. Um, the only quarrels they had at the time was with um, with uh, Fiji. There was also a lot of trade going on at the time with Fiji. And so in these interactions with Fiji, Tongan warriors would also hire themselves out as mercenaries and participate in some of um, the local wars that were going on in Fiji. And in that process, they acquired uh, just, you know, knowledge of how to better their weapons. And so uh, prior to that experience, um, the bows and arrows in Tonga were mostly just for recreation and used to shoot things like rats and birds. But uh, exposure to Fiji and to uh, the Fijian way of the warrior, they uh, learned how to construct bows and arrows that are much more useful for war. They also learned how to craft uh, superior spears and also learned how to use them effectively in the uh, battlefield. And then they just learned other things like face paint or painting their faces as a form of psychological warfare. And these were just some of the customs that young warriors in Tonga, not everyone in Tonga was doing this, but it was specifically uh, young warriors who followed a chief by the name of Tuihalafatai who spent time in Fiji. And we'll come back and talk about him in uh, future episodes. But let's go back to the incident that sparked this civil war that Mariner walked right into. So in the last episode, I talked about the three dynasties in Tonga. And so the first one was the Tu'i Tonga, and then uh, the Tu'i Hatakalaua, and then later came the Tu'i Kanokpolu. The first Tu'i Tonga was Aoetu, and that was about 900, 950 AD. And from that time to the 1400, there was a succession of uh, Tuitonga. Now, the Tuitongas, the uh, long history of assassinations. And we also read that, you know, the Tuitonga, um, many of them were very cruel. And so uh, that would explain uh, why they were being just assassinated left and right. In 1470, a new line was created, the Tuihatakalaua. And this was a split from the Tuitonga. The Tuitonga would become the spiritual leader of the nation. And the Tuihatakalaua managed more the political affairs of the nation, uh, more secular. And then by the time of the Tuihatakalaua, the sixth one, uh, his name was Maunga Otonga, he wanted to split the line again and kind of replicate what they did in the first split, where uh, they have one role 
um, who would be more of a spiritual leader. And so he wanted to have like the same type of perks and privileges of a tuitonga and then have someone else manage the um, political affairs of the nation. And so that became his son, Ngata, in the beginning of the Tuikanokpolu line. And so at Mariner's time, there were three lines in Tonga. And these are the three lines that we just talked about. So when uh, Captain Cook was in Tonga in 1777, Pau was the Tuitonga, Maya Liwaki was the Tuiha and Tupou Lahi was the Tuikanokpolu. Although he was elderly and almost blind, and so his son, uh, Tui was the Tui Kanokpolu at the time. And so Mariner notes that all three titles uh, existed simultaneously, and there was nobody in Tonga who was confused about who they were. So with the Tui Tonga and the Tui Takalawa lines uh, now just relegated to uh, managing the spiritual affairs of the nation, uh, the Tui Kanokpolu was the dynasty that was actually running everything else. And so in 1792, the Tui Kanokpolu of that time, Muli Kihaamea, decided he wanted to retire basically from his responsibilities as the Tui Kanokpolu and become like the Tuihatakalaua, so, you know, just being a, a spiritual type leader. He probably just got sick of everyone's bullshit and wanted to just relax and chill. So we now have this void. So who is going to fill this void and become the next Tuikanokpolu? And stepping forward to fill that void is a woman by the name of Dupo Moheofo. Now, Tupomo Heofo is interesting because at this time, she was probably the highest ranking person in Tonga due to her matrilineal or her mother's genealogy. Her uh, grandmother was a Tamaha, and a Tamaha is the sacred eldest daughter of the Tuitonga's eldest sister. Did you all get that? So her grandmother was the eldest daughter of the Tuitonga's eldest sister. So the eldest sister of the Tuitonga would be known as a Tuitonga Fefine, and then her eldest daughter would be Tatamaha. And according to this website, royalark.net, Tatamaha is the highest dignity on earth to whom both her mother and grandfather had to pay homage. Interestingly, this site, uh, it also says that Tuitonga was the lord of the soil, enjoyed divine honors. He took no part in the civil government of the country and could not arbitrate in any civil quarrel, but could absolve sinners who have broken taboos. The Tuikanokpolu held temporal power, wielding absolute power over life and death of the people. Only a son or grandson of a Tuitonga by a daughter of the Tuikanokpolu could succeed as a Tuitonga. The Tuitonga could only have two children by one wife, and she is taken away from him after the birth of their second child. Interesting. The eldest daughter of the Tuitonga held a spiritual rank that was higher than her father and was styled the Tuitonga Fefine. She was forbidden from marrying any mortal, but may, if she choose, have children by irregular unions. Wow, I learned something new today. So in the late 1760s, Tupo Moheofo married the Tuitonga Pau. Tupo Moheofo was also the sister of Tuihalafatai, the ninth Tuikanokpolu, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Now, pay attention to all these connections because it's going to get really crazy, kind of like Game of Thrones crazy, minus the White Walkers and the dragons and that terrible 
eighth season. Anyway, so Mulikihamea steps down from his title of Tuikanokpolu, uh, so it leaves his void, and Tupomoheofo uh, unexpectedly steps up and she claims the title for herself. And so, in the tradition of uh, the installation of a Tuikanokpolu, she went to Hihifo. Hihifo is the western district of Tongatapu, and she puts on a taovala and she sits with her back to the coca tree. And this is where, uh, this is the tradition of installing a tuikanokpolu. And so this action uh, taken by Tupo Moheofo really made a lot of people mad. And one of those people was her very own cousin, Tukuaho. Tukuaho was the governor of Ewa, and that's where he was living at the time. And he strongly felt that his father, uh, Mumui, should have been the next Tuikanokpolu. So Tukuaho was just incensed and furious at what happened and uh, began to wage a public campaign against Tupo Moheofo and known just to uh, publicly humiliate her with vulgarities that totally breaches the Whaka'apa'apa uh, or the respect that a brother and a sister should have because they're related. So Tukuaho would uh, seize her estates and just try to squeeze her out of power and Tupo Mohyofo was very stubborn and she wouldn't step down. She also had a support of a lot of the Tongan chiefs because Tupo Mohyofo's um, family line was of a higher rank than Tukuaho. So Tupo Mohyofo was uh, in power for um, not a full year. And while she was in power, Tukuaho was uh, actively just challenging her authority. Their warriors clashed several times and she was eventually forced into exile to Ha'apai. And so Tukuaho was then able to put his father Mumui as the 13th Tu'i Kanokpolu. Meanwhile, Tupo Moheofo is building up her army again in Ha'apai. You know, I gotta admire her spirit. Just don't give up. She goes to Ha'apai, she's in exile, she's lost her, her uh, position, she's lost her territory. But she ain't giving up because she is going to go back and fight again. And that's exactly what she does. So she raises an army. They go back to Tongatapu. Unfortunately, she gets her butt kicked again. And um, she is uh, she survives and she goes into exile in Vava'u. And that is where she just kind of resigned herself to uh, no more starting wars. And maybe she's just going to stay home and take the L gracefully. So now with Mumui as a Tuikanokpolu, he is um, he is coming to the end of his reign and he's looking to pass on the title. And he chooses Muli Kihamea and not his son Tukuaho, which really just makes him angry. And so there are some who believe that the reason why Mumui passed over his own son was because Tukuaho was actually quite scary. And there are some uh, recorded accounts of uh, Europeans who actually witnessed some of the cruelty. And so in his war against Tupo Moheofo, he was just uh, scary. Okay, a European eyewitness described Tukuaho tying enemies to trees and burning them alive. Uh, missionaries said that he cut off the hands of a man who had committed a misdemeanor. And then he also amputated the left arm of 12 of his cooks for no reason other than to show people that he can do it. And then another incident documented by missionaries is that he had these two women stretched out their arms and then they were tied up and then he uh, put burning torches under their armpits. And then another incident uh, recorded is that he sawed a woman in half while she was still alive. 
and Mariner describes Tuku'aho's reputation as of a vindictive and cruel turn of mind, taking every opportunity to exert his authority and frequently in a manner not only cruel but wanton. Interestingly, when Tupomoheofo fled to Vava'u and took exile in Vava'u, she did so under the safety of the Ulukalala family. And so now we are all bringing these points together to this time when Mariner was in Tonga and in these times of civil war. So Mumui is contemplating giving the title of Tuitsanokpolu to Mulikihamea, but then um, his son Tukuaho pleads and he convinces the chiefs of the Ngata clan to uh, install him as the next Tuitsanokpolu, uh, so he becomes the 14th Tuitsanokpolu. Uh, and during his reign, he just makes so many enemies due to his cruelty and his tyranny and his ignorance of traditional succession. So in April of 1799, all the chiefs in Tonga came together for uh, the ritual reburial of the 18th Tuihatakalaua Toa Funaki. And so at this gathering, this is where uh, many of the chiefs who had grudges against Tuku'aho decided that they were going to assassinate him. Tupo Niwa had a particular grudge against Tuku'aho, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but these were the co-conspirators, Fina Ulukalala, Mulikihamea, and Fatafehi Fuanunuiaba. Fina Ulukalala was avenging his father, who he felt should have been given lordship over Vava'u, but Tukuaho didn't give that to him. And then Mulikihamea, remember he was the one that Mumui, who is uh, Tukuaho's father, wanted to give the title of Tuikanokpolu to um, earlier, but uh, of course Tukuaho intervened in that. And then Fatafehi Fuanunuyava was the son of the Tuitonga Pau, and more importantly, the son of Tupo Moheofo. And so he also felt that he was eligible also for the Tuikanokpolu title. So they put their plan into action, and Mariner describes the assassination. He says, About midnight, they again repaired to Tukuaho's house with the plotters, whom they placed around it as watchful guards, ready to dispatch all who might attempt to escape from the place. Of these, Finau took the command, while Tuponiwa entered armed with his axe and burning with desire of revenge. As he passed along, on either hand laid the wives and favorite mistresses of the king. He sought the mat of his destined victim, where he lay buried in the profoundest sleep. He stood over him for a short moment, but willing that he should know from whom he received his death, and he struck him with his hand upon the face. Tukuaho started up. It is I, Tuponiwa, that strike, and a tremendous blow felled him never to rise again. So basically, uh, the conspirators all went to the house where Tukuaho was sleeping. Uh, Tuponiwa, he goes into the residence. Tukuaho is laying there and he is in deep sleep. Uh, Tuponiwa slaps his face to wake him up because he wanted to announce to him that I'm going to be the one who's going to kick your ass and you are going to die tonight. And that is exactly what happened. Again, going back to Mariner's words, horror and confusion immediately took place. Tuponiwa snatched up the late king's adopted son, a child of three years old, whom he was desirous of saving, and rushed out of the house as the guards of Finau rushed in, 
when speedy death silenced the screams of those who but now lay reposed in the arms of sleep. The two chiefs and their followers betook themselves as quickly as possible to Ha'akili. Early in the morning, confusion and dismay reigned in Tongatapu. Men and women ran, they knew no whither, unknowing whether to join this party or that. Old men were seen making speeches to the people, encouraging them to avenge the death of their chief. The numerous relations and friends of the deceased king ran about beating their breasts and weeping. Shells were heard blowing in every quarter as signals of war and disturbance to assemble the friends of the late king and to summon together the partisans of liberty. So basically all of Tongatapu is just going crazy and everybody wants to avenge the death of Tukuaho. From Mariner's book, he writes, Finau and Tuponiwa, in the course of a few hours, assembled together a considerable number of adherents. After launching their canoes in case their retreat from the island should be necessary, they proceeded to Hihifo, the place where the the how or where the king uh, referring to Tuku'aho was killed. And let me just add while we are talking about Hihifo or Hake, that's really just talking about east or western districts of Tongatapu or actually any any of the islands in Tonga. So if you're in Mava'u, there is a eastern district which is the Hahake, it's where the sun rises. That's literally what that means. And then Hihifo is where the sun sets and that is on the west. And so whenever you hear Hihifo or Hake, that's what they're talking about. So listen to how ballsy they are. So they go to Hihifo. This is where they assassinated Tukuaho. They go back to destroy the enemy's canoes and they succeeded in doing that. Okay. And then the next direction is they march to the palace where loyalists were assembled about three quarters a mile distant from Hihifo. A general battle took place which lasted till night with great slaughter on both sides. Finau's party was at length repulsed and forced to fly back to Ha'akili, where they remained till the evening of the ensuing day when an event happened which reinforced their strength and gave these allied chiefs and their followers fresh spirits for the combat. So what was this event that Mariner is talking about? If you remember in the podcast, we talked about Dui Halafatai. Well, the event was Dui Halafatai. He came from Fiji with all his warriors and it seemed like he arrived just at the nick of time. Mariner says, Dui Halafatai and his bold adventurers arrived in two canoes from Fiji. This chief and his warlike companions, ever ready to enter into a new contest, immediately joined Finau and swore allegiance to his cause. The very evening of their landing, Dui Halafatai felt himself much indisposed. As his disorder hourly increased, he was seized with the apprehension that his complaint was mortal. With this idea strongly impressed upon his mind, he proposed that they should sally forth as early as possible the ensuing morning to meet the enemy while he had any strength remaining, that by this means he might escape the bed of sickness and die gloriously in the field of battle. You go, Duihalafatai. Okay, back to the book. Scarcely had the sun risen when the three chiefs and their brave warriors were already on their march towards Hihifo. Their equally brave and determined opponents met them about halfway. Both of them paused as if instinctively at the same moment. They summoned up their spirits to endure a mighty and bloody conflict. Liberty on one side, loyalty on the other, fired them with a desire to perform matchless achievements. Dui Halafatai could brook no delay. Anxious to set the glorious example of a heroic spirit, 
he and his Fiji warriors began the battle by rushing forward on a party of the enemy. Immediately, the battle became general with such unconquerable determination on both sides that the plains of Tonga had perhaps never before witnessed so tremendous a shock. The brave Tuponiwa, inspired by the greatness of his cause, with a resistless arm performed prodigies of valor. When he stood, he stood like a rock, and when he rushed, it was with the impetuosity of a torrent. He raised his ponderous club only to give death to his victim. As he moved forward, he strove over the bodies of fallen chiefs. In another part of the battle, Tuihalafatai was seen moving forward in the path of victory. Though he felt his strength decreasing, the terror of his fiery eye paralyzed the arms of his enemies. At length, fearful lest too speedy a conquest might deprive him of the opportunity of a dying warrior's death, he rushed with an exulting spirit into the thickest of the battle and fell pierced with spears beneath the clubs of his adversaries. In the meantime, Finau was not an idle looker-on. He fought with equal courage, but with a more steady and less presumptuous bravery. The greatest of his enemies fell beneath the weight of his club as his eye sated itself with the number of his opponents, whom death had stretched upon the reeking plain, his ambitious mind confident in victory seemed already to enjoy the sweets and power of monarchy. The battle raged for about three hours when by the extraordinary exertions and achievements principally of Tuponiua, who, as fame reports, slew on that day forty with his own hand, the enemy became panic-struck and fled in all directions, conquered by that arm which two days before in giving Tuku'aho his death had delivered the country from a tyrant. So Finau was uh, victorious in this battle, but it cost him the lives of many of his bravest warriors and also reduced his numbers. And so after consultation with the other two, with Tuponiwa and also with uh, Tuihalafatai, they decided to go back to Ha'apai. And Tuponiwa was from Vava'u, so he went back to Vava'u uh, and where they were going to go and regroup. So Tuponiwa, Finau Ulukalala, and then uh, Tui Halafatai, who joined them at the battle in uh, Tongatapu, are all um, fleeing with their warriors to Hapai. And um, they stop in Nomuka, which is one of the islands in Hapai, and they meet some resistance from there. But soon they're able to get uh, control and possession of uh, Nomuka, and then they eventually make their way to Ha'ano, and they're met with uh, loyalists to Tuku'aho, so uh, some resistance in Ha'ano, and so they had to fight that one out too, and Finau Ulukalala eventually wins that one and takes control of Ha'ano. So after that battle, he rounds up all of the chiefs and um, all the Matapules and pretty much anyone that was against him. He puts them to death. And so some of them were tied up and put in leaky canoes. And so he would put the canoe out in the ocean after he ties them up. And then the canoe would just slowly sink and they would drown to death. Others were taken to the island of Ofolanga and they were tied naked to stakes. And um, and they were just left there to starve to death. And so while they were tied up, um, some of the, the warriors, or these were like the younger ones, would go up to them and stick... Um, sharp splinters of wood into their bodies and just torment them that way um, and and they were exposed to just the heat of the sun 
and um, the weaker ones would die early, but some of them last as long as eight days. And so after they seized and they had control of Ha'ano, they left for Vava'u. And uh, of course, they were loyalists to Tuku'aho in Vava'u as well. And they were very determined to uh, resist Finau Ulukalala. And so uh, they didn't do it so much in open warfare, but they would assault them in the cover of darkness of night. Or during the day, they would do it from hiding places. And so this mode of warfare was just very uh, irritating to Fina Ulukalala. And it lasted about 14 to 15 days. But eventually, um, Tuponiwa and Fina Ulukalala would uh, have control of Vava'u. And Vuna, who was the chief of Vava'u at the time, fled to Samoa with a canoe full of other chiefs, which pretty much left Vava'u open for Fina Ulukalala to declare himself the, um, the chief of the entire island. So now he has control of Hapai and then he has control of Avau and Tupo Niwa he left him in charge as the uh, the person who's pretty much going to govern Vavau. So interestingly um, when Fina Ulukalala punished the chiefs who resisted him in Vavau, Mariner doesn't describe the way they were punished. He just puts in there um, put to death by means too revolting to the feelings to mention. So I would hate to think of what exactly that punishment was. So with Tupo Niua in place as uh, the person to govern Vava'u, Fina Ulukalara goes back to his base in Ha'apai. Meanwhile, in Tongatapu, things are not going so well because Tuku'aho, when he was assassinated, he didn't have anyone to succeed him. And so that left a power vacuum in, in Tongatapu and all the chiefs were now vying for power. And they were building forts, which led to... Uh, what we know today as uh, Kolotau, um, all these different fortifications throughout Tongatapu. And in Mariner's book, he talks about at least 12 to 13 forts throughout Tongatapu. This also led to other problems such as famine because people were no longer out working in you know, their plantations because everyone was garrisoned inside a fort and basically for their own safety. And so Finau Ulukalala would uh, take his warriors from Hapai and they would go to Tonga and they would launch attacks on these forts. And uh, the forts were all, they were strong, uh, very well fortified. And Finau Ulukalala was not successful in breaching the forts. And this is where Mariner really earns the name Tokiukamea, Iron Axe, because he is the one who knows how to use these cannons. And these cannons are what's going to bring down these forts. Okay, so that is the end of chapter four, and I'm going to end the podcast there as well. And now we are ramping up for war, and Mariner is going to join, actually, the front lines of war in the next episode. So thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode, um, please send them to me for our Q&A. My email is rwolfgram at gmail.com r-w-o-l-f-g-r-a-m-m at gmail.com or call me and leave me a voicemail on uh, my google voice number it's a toll-free call 385-347-0906 and i would love to hear from you so i want to thank you all for tuning in and uh, just thank you for all the uh, compliments 
and um, I'm, I know I said this in the Q&A, but I can't tell you how thankful I am when I run into people who tell me that they're listening to the podcast or even just some of the messages that you guys are sending in about all the things that you are learning. And that's really all I'm trying to do. I am not a uh, historian. I didn't go to school for this. I'm just a person who loves um, history and I have all these books and I want to share it with people. My hope is that I spark your interest in learning about, you know, Tongan history or just your own histories of whatever uh, island that you come from. Um, we're all, you know, connected in Polynesia. And so thank you again. I appreciate you all. And I look forward to uh, seeing you next week. See you ofa.
Oh! 